Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally. Today is Friday, December 16th, 2022. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, joins me from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So in the final weeks of 2022, Andrew, Velocity of Content is reviewing the past 12 months of programs. Every Friday, you share with me PW's reporting and your analysis on the latest developments in publishing in the world of books. For this show, let's take a final look at the top headlines of 2022. We've chosen to highlight four of the biggest stories we covered this year. On our first show in January, the Omicron surge had put COVID back in the news, pushing out return-to-work dates for publishing houses in New York City. By year's end, though, Frankfurt Book Fair returned to the world stage as a fully in-person event. Also on that first show in January, Andrew, you reported that New York Governor Kathy Hochul vetoed New York's library ebook law, which would have required publishers to license ebooks to public libraries on reasonable terms. And in February, a federal judge granted the Association of American Publishers motion for a preliminary injunction blocking Maryland officials from enforcing that state's own library ebook law. A two-year-old AAP lawsuit against the Internet Archive claiming that so-called controlled digital lending by libraries is really copyright infringement continues to inch forward motion by motion. In this fight, Andrew, 2022 was a good year for publishers and AAP. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say, more accurate to say that it was a good year for the AAP's lawyers uh, because they were successful in blocking Maryland's library ebook law from taking effect and in getting New York to veto its own library ebook law. But I think the question remains what did that really achieve, right? Because they certainly have not fixed the issues with the library ebook market, which very much remains contentious as we head into 2023. At least in terms of, you know, how that's going to shake itself out in the future. You know, I'm not sure the lawyers are going to have a heck of a lot to do with that. I think that's going to be a market, uh, something that's going to happen in the market in the future. But, you know, I want to take a quick refresher and go back and talk about that Maryland law. As you said, it would have required publishers to offer libraries licenses on reasonable terms to books that are ebooks and digital audiobooks that are available in the state. And I don't think that was really a terribly radical proposal. But it certainly came across as such. And indeed, the AAP uh, from the outset had claimed that this was outside of copyright law. Uh, But I think it's important to remember that this law came in response, direct response, really, to Macmillan's embargo on frontless library ebooks in 2019, which the library community had protested was inequitable, fundamentally inequitable, something that they just weren't going to go for. So this law was the result. Now, of course, once it got to court, the AAP had a relatively easy time. They had one hearing in front of federal judge Deborah Boardman. She came back just weeks later and found that, indeed, the law did run afoul of copyright law. I think the bigger issue that remains here, however, is that and I have to remember this wasn't the publishers that brought suit. This was the AAP in terms of uh, protecting the principle of copyright. And I think where that leaves us in the future when it comes to library ebook lending is how exactly are we going to get some equity into this marketplace, a marketplace that librarians have complained uh, about high prices and restrictive terms for so long? And I just don't think that's something we're going to be able to sue ourselves into. And I think if the takeaway is that the AP was able to get this law defeated in court, we're missing the point. I think the, the more important point here 
was that the library community was able to get this law passed unanimously in the first place. So there is political will to act in the digital library market here. And I think that would be the takeaway for me here, that if the marketplace doesn't step up and get this done, at some point, you are going to see legislators find a way to write a law that doesn't run afoul of copyright law that is going to step in and do something. So I think that should be a warning shot to, to the publishing community at large. And in terms of the Internet Archive case, I think this is really going to be a huge story to watch in 2023. We're now at the summary judgment stage. Uh, the summary judgment motions on both sides have been fully briefed. Uh, it's not clear if they're going to have a, a hearing anytime soon or if there's going to be settlement talks, what's going to happen next year. I would expect a hearing will come next and I really don't have many predictions here. As you say, this case involves the concept of controlled digital lending, which is a process by which libraries scan copies or other institutions like the Internet Archive, scan copies of their physical collections and make the scans available and then sort of regulate them in the way they would regulate a print book. The publishing community says that is blatant infringement. The library community says this is just the publishing community trying to assert domination and true control over the digital lending market. I'm not really sure how this is all going to shake out. I think it's a very complex legal case to bring. All I can say is that I doubt it's going to be resolved in 2023. Uh, if it is not resolved at the summary judgment stage, we're going to have a trial. And if it is resolved one way or another, if there's a decision one way or another in the summary judgment stage, we're most certainly going to see appeals. So as for how this case resolves itself, it's impossible for me to predict at this point, but I'll make this prediction that we're probably going to be talking about it on next year's Roundup show, too. And while Book Talk has driven impressive sales rises in adult fiction throughout this year, Andrew, book sales have taken a roller coaster ride, especially in the last few months. 2022 sales look to end at lower levels than in the past two pandemic years. Yeah, it really has been a roller coaster year this year. And, you know, you mentioned book talk and, you know, I really I, you have to wonder where we would be. In fact, you could probably do the math and find out where we'd be as an industry without Colleen Hoover. Right. The book talk star, of course, uh, who continues to sell hundreds of thousands, millions of copies of her various titles. But, you know, we're just a few days out from the end of the year. And what we know so far is that, you know, the roller coaster continues. Uh, holiday sales have started out soft. Uh, they seem to be rounding into form somewhat. And we have, you know, a couple of big books. So you have Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry. We have the the juggernaut that is Colleen Hoover, of course. There's a new Brandon Sanderson book. And there's, you know, the Jeff Kinney's Diary of a Wimpy Kid. The newest book is out as well. All in all, I think publishers are probably feeling okay about how 2022 has gone, especially, you know, now with signs that inflation could be easing and gas prices are coming down. And, you know, if you ask any publisher what makes for a good year, you know, obviously you want to have good titles, you want to have some blockbusters in there. But I think key to any publisher's good year is a stable economy where, you know, consumers have some disposable income and they feel good about going out and spending. And that's been unpredictable. That's been tough this year. Additionally, I think publishers have to be feeling pretty good about where they are now, especially given all of the, the challenges they faced on the supply side, right, with the supply chain disruptions and um, with printing capacity issues, the idea that the publishing industry would be having the kind of year it's having, which is, you know, down from the record-breaking 2021 year, but still pretty good, given all the challenges they face, I think is nothing short of astonishing. Uh, you know, I think the good news, too, for publishers is that while no one would have expected that these massive sales spikes of 2020 and 2021 were going to become the new norm, I think the question is how much 
of those gains would we be giving back in 2022? And the answer is not much. Um, it appears it's going to be probably around 6% maybe by the end of the year. And I think if you had told most industry leaders that you know they were going to be down about 6% from the great year that was 2021, I think they would have been pretty much okay with that, uh, especially, again, given all of the supply chain and printing capacity issues they, they face. At the same time, the future is unwritten. We could see slower growth in the future. I think one of the questions we've had for the pandemic period is, did publishers actually create new readers during this time? In the last two years where we've seen these increase in sales, was that because we've been bringing new readers, new customers into the fold, or we've just been selling more books to our existing customers? And I don't think we really know that yet. And I think it's going to be a while before we really do know that. I do think that, you know, it's not like publishing is a well of untapped innovation. It's a fair, it's a mature market. So I, I think if we were able to go back to modest levels of growth, one or 2% a year, but at a higher level that we got through from 2020 to 2021, publishers would feel pretty good about things. You can always have hot years, you can always have down years, but the, the decades worth of growth that publishers stuffed into the last two years, I think are going to make them very happy. This year, book bans and challenges to the freedom to read continued to surge in communities across the U.S. Last week, Andrew, you shared data from the American Library Association and PEN America showing that most of those titles involved LGBTQ plus themes and issues of race and social justice. So for 2022, it was a disturbing year for free speech in the U.S. Yeah, it sure was. Um, and to me, this is probably the biggest story of the year in 2022 is this surge in book bans and uh, educational gag orders and other censorship attempts. And book bans are nothing new. We've you know been talking about book bans for years on this program. The publishing community has been dealing with them for, for decades. Uh, book bans are as old as books themselves. But what we're seeing in the United States of America in 2022 and in 2021, of course, as well, is new. And that's that we're seeing a coordinated national political attempt on the right using books, using targeting libraries and targeting schools to basically try to erase certain things from our bookshelves. The LGBT community, for example, communities of color are being erased, for example. This is a, a pernicious effort that is being undertaken, that's being organized at the national level and is being executed at the local level. And it's something that is going to really take an effort to sort of push back, right? This is not about policy. This is not about going to your local library and filling out the complaint form and challenging a book, it's, which is a system that has served us well for decades, right? This is the way things have always gone. This is something else entirely. This is about activists, going to local school board meetings, going to local library board meetings and shouting people down. Uh, this is about intimidation. You know, it's a very chilling time in America right now. It's hard for me to say where this is all going to go in 2023, but I'll venture a guess to say that it's not going away. And I think that for all the good work that Freedom to Read advocates have done in 2022, we're going to need a stronger effort in 2023. And we're going to frankly need to see this for what it is. Uh, it's not a debate about policies and procedures. Uh, it's not even so much a, a First Amendment debate, though, of course, this is about books and book banning. This is really a political issue, and it needs to be fought like a political issue. Uh, absolutely, it's about the freedom to read. But this is really an attack on the LGBT community and communities of color. And it's done by ginning up anger and calling books pornography. And this is really re going to require a concerted effort 
by defenders of free speech and by those of us who care about humanity to stop this, to stand up and bring the lobbyists to bear and bring public pressure to bear to let people know that this is not acceptable. Now, the good news is that polls show that this is a vocal minority that are pushing these bans, right? All of the polls show that most Americans remain staunchly opposed to censorship and to pulling books off the shelves. So we have to, you know, make that work for us. We have to come back in 2023 and let our politicians know at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, that we're not going to stand for this kind of book banning. And I think we can win if we speak up and if we make sure that that message gets home in 2023, we can make, make a real difference. But it's been a chilling year watching these book bans unfold. And I'm afraid more to come is in 2023. The year's top story in books and publishing broke on Halloween, Andrew, when Judge Florence Pan blocked the proposed $2 billion Penguin Random House acquisition of Simon & Schuster over antitrust grounds. The U.S. Department of Justice had made its case that the proposed merger would lessen competition in the market for book rights, deeply impacting authors. And last Friday, PRH CEO Marcus Dole resigned after PRH paid SNS a $200 million breakup fee. So let's do the math. A couple billion dollars and a CEO's career both have vanished. Where does that leave the industry, not to mention Simon & Schuster? All good questions. Um, let's start with Marcus Dole, because that one really took me by surprise. And we had talked about this on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'd said I didn't think that Marcus Dole was going anywhere. But I have to tell you, I was thinking about that question from the perspective of Marcus being fired. And there had been whispers in the industry that Marcus's job might be in jeopardy over this deal. And I didn't think that was possible because let's be honest, uh, the Bertelsmann board knew exactly what they were getting into with Marcus here. Marcus wasn't hiding anything about the challenges that this deal might face. And they were on board. They, they came every step of the way with him. They went with him with this, with the, towards this acquisition of Simon and Schuster. So I didn't really think that this was a, a case of Marcus falling on his sword or being or being you know taken out because of a, a, a bad maneuver here. Yes, the, the sale did not work out. It turned out to be a, a bad maneuver in the, in, in the final analysis. So why did Marcus leave? I think though, and I haven't spoken to Marcus about this, I hope to very soon. My guess is that this is just sort of the end of the line for Marcus Dole and the fact that Marcus is a builder, right? He came to Random House to build the company. He did so by acquiring Penguin. He drove that deal. He built Penguin Random House into the juggernaut that is. And now he wanted to take that a step further. Marcus wants to build big things. He wants to build a big company. And he's just been told by a federal judge that his building days are over. <laughs> Penguin Random House will not be acquiring any more big things. And I just don't see Marcus as the kind of guy to sit back and just manage a publishing company. It was, albeit a very big and a very great one, you know, if he's not able to put something together, then he wants to be doing something else. So I think Marcus looked at this and said, he's just been shown the exit. He think he's on to his new challenge. He's on to build his next company, I believe. So when they say it was mutual, I think that's probably what they mean, that Marcus and the board both decided that Marcus's talents were probably better utilized in another environment where he could build another company. What does it mean for the industry? Ah, the very interesting question going forward. Now, I don't, what this means for Simon & Schuster is another year of uncertainty, I'm afraid. And I regret to say that for our friends at Simon & Schuster who really have been living you know, under a cloud for two years now, not knowing who their corporate owner was going to be. Uh, the good news is that Simon & Schuster's had a very good year despite all of this, but it can't be easy to, to, to continue to work like this. And I think in her decision, Judge Pan 
sort of cast some doubt on whether the next buyer is going to be a big five publisher. And I say that because she talked a lot in her decision about the consolidation already in the industry and the potential for coordination in the industry. And she really made it sound like she was not in favor of having another big publisher step up and take the big five to a big four. That said, all of the lawyers I speak to tell me that this is one judge and one circuit. As strong as the ruling may be, another judge may find differently. So there's that. And it's really, it's impossible for me to believe that seeing Simon & Schuster come back on the market and knowing other companies, other big five companies were interested, chief among them, uh, HarperCollins, it's impossible for me not to envision a scenario where HarperCollins does not take its shot and and try to land Simon & Schuster. And if it does so, it's still not even going to be as big as Penguin Random House. Now, is that going to be too much consolidation for the courts going forward? Again, the math is going to look different anyone's guess what a new judge in a new court is going to decide. I think the industry itself, having had its concerns about consolidation voiced so eloquently by Judge Pan, is going to raise some concerns about another big five acquisition of Simon & Schuster. But for now, I would say the money, the the smart money is on HarperCollins making a very strong bid. Uh, And of course, private equity and a foreign buyer are always in the game as well. I would hesitate to say that the days of consolidation are over, despite Judge Pan's lyrical, you know, (laughs) views on consolidation and her opinion. She really did write uh, some words that were music to many of us in the industry's ears. But that said, I do think you're going to see Simon Schuster will have another owner in 2023. And I think we're a long way from seeing the end of consolidation in the publishing business. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program today and throughout 2022. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, we continue a review of the past 12 months of programs with a focus on issues in science and research, from seeking reasons for the decline of public trust in science to a single-handed effort to write women scientists into Wikipedia. Dr. Jessica Wade of Imperial College of London says change in society can lead to change in science. You know, I fundamentally believe that diverse teams do better science. You know, you think about a question in a different way. You come up with new ways to investigate and analyze data and interact and collaborate. And there's various studies that show that the more diverse the team is, the more impactful their research is and the more highly cited it is and the more broad-reaching societal implications it should ha- it has. And so we definitely know diversity works. And I think that particularly because we've left women's voices out of this kind of conversation about scientific discovery for so long, we've missed out on so many opportunities to do great research and to, to learn great things. And that's what I really strongly believe. Science 2.0 on the next podcast from CCC. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can listen to Velocity of Content on demand on YouTube as part of the Copyright Clearance Center channel and subscribe wherever you go for podcasts. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for joining me throughout the year on Velocity of Content from 2022. And best wishes for 2023.